Hello? Hey, Joel, this is Jeff. Uh, is Jeff there? <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I am the I'm, person. I'm trying, I'm trying new openings for the show. Okay, I see. Because, you know, there was a little discussion as to the warm startup and stuff like that, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I like the warm start. So, uh, let's see. What should we start with today? Um, uh, I guess we could start with, we're going to be hosted at IT Conversations. That's sort of confirmed, right? Oh, yeah. 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 I think, uh, you know, they had some kind of thing to sign, uh, which they haven't gotten me yet. Doug, you listening? Send me that thing. <laughs> and then we become an IT Conversations show. And they're like the NPR of podcasts. Basically, they model themselves on NPR. They're a nonprofit. And it just seems like a good outfit to be associated with, especially since we don't really care. You know, the podcast. Well, no, I'm sorry. We don't actually care to make the podcast. The podcast is not supposed to be commercial in any way, shape, or form. It's just a continuation of our blog experience. That's right. And there's a lot of other really good uh, podcasts on there as well. So There are. I enjoyed many of the IT Conversations podcasts I've gotten. I mean, they were doing it. They were probably doing it like a seriously like a, a year or two before anybody was really doing it. It sort of started out as just like you know audio recordings you could get on IT conversations of trade show, of uh, conferences and trade shows and that kind of thing, right? And they had some interviews. Yeah, yeah, I've listened to a few myself, and they always get some really uh, impressive people and good topics. So again, it's a good place to be associated with. So I'm really glad that they they actually sort of approached us because they actually heard us talking about it on the podcast and. Right. Uh, emailed us, which was very nice of them. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That's great. We're also using one of their tools. They have this tool that they have that they put out called Levelator, which is absolutely awesome if you're producing any kind of audio uh, of any way, shape, or form. You just sort of drop a WAV file on top of Levelator, and it goes through and it adjusts the volumes, the levels, so that everybody, uh, you know, all the participants come out at the same volume, which otherwise you would have an audio engineer sitting there with a mixer adjusting it on the fly. But because they can look forward and back backwards in the in the sound file instead of merely looking backwards as a typical level automatic level machine could do, mm-hmm. uh, they can they can do that with higher quality. So for example, you could get like the, the, the old school if you bought like a a Sony cassette recorder in 1963, it, you could push a little button and it would set the levels automatically. Uh, and the way it would do that is it would just keep slowly raising the level a little bit until it clipped, and then it would knock it back a bunch and then start slowly raising it again. And so you'd, you know, about 90% of the time you'd have good levels. Yeah. But Levelator is actually able to look at the whole file forwards and backwards and say, hmm, this little part where it must be that guy talking too quietly and just sort of raise it or lower it. And uh, Anyway, it's, it's, it's an awesome tool, uh, highly recommended. And uh, a free service from the nice folks at IT Conversations. So yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize that uh, that tool was something they produced. So that's very very cool. I'll plug that. Yeah. So yep. another thing um, that's uh, going on this week is let's see. You you spoke at the the Ruby uh, on Rails conference, right? Yeah. You wanted to say Rube? I could tell. The no. Rubes. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't get a chance. I noticed you didn't post about that. I didn't get a chance to search the web to see how that went. But what? How did the talk go? What? How did that? Um, I, 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 I don't know. I got, you know, a nice email from David Hansen, Anna Meyer. He's a real sweetie. Um, Anna Meyer Hansen, Anna, David, 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 just say DHH. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So DHH uh, liked it. Yeah. Okay, good. But he's generally a nice guy. 
Yeah, so no, I, I agree. I mean, I wrote that one negative thing about him where I was sort of a, a little annoyed with some of his attitudes towards people who didn't work on, say, Max, you know. Uh, but oh, general, yeah, that was sort of silly. <laughs> if yeah. you don't work on a Mac, I don't want to work with you. <laughs> yeah, well, just, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. And, you know, I, I think this also highlights one of the points I make on my blog is I can disagree with specific things people say, and it doesn't mean that I hate them or that they're... Well, it is actually true. When you go to the Ruby, Ruby on Rails conference, you see that everybody has a Mac. Uh, now, the yeah. reason for that is that the Mac, a Mac is a luxury product, and people will always spend extra money for the luxury products in whatever category they're most interested in. So the geeks that really love programming will spend extra money for a Mac, you know, for the luxury laptop. Right. It's 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 like totally that simple. There's some people that will spend extra money for the luxury golf clubs and there's some people that will spend extra money for the luxury kitchen with all the Viking and the Sub-Zero appliances. Uh, and it just depends what, what, what you're in love with. And the geeks, by definition, are like the computers. And for them, plopping down a couple of thousand dollars for a slightly sleeker laptop uh, is uh, completely reasonable. Right. And I also think it's important to be rational about this and to be adult and say, again, I can disagree with specific things someone has said, and it doesn't mean that we're like mortal enemies. Because we've brought up DHH before, like he gave that talk that we really enjoyed um, on uh, at, at startup, startup school that was also excellent. And yeah. generally, he's a really smart guy. So it's just this one thing that I kind okay. of disagree with. Um, but it's amazing how often people, they'll, they'll read something you write and just assume that you know, you're more... Well, they're kind of flag wave. You know, this is the thing which drives me crazy. Like, uh, somewhere I found some comment on the Ruby blog or something saying, Joel Spolsky will be speaking at the keynote in Ruby on Rail Conference. And the comment was, you know, by Anani Mouse or something. The comment was, Joel Spolsky, isn't he a .NET guy? I mean, what the heck? What does that mean? What's a .NET guy? Well, no, you're not even like, a .NET guy. You're a Wasabi guy. It's worse. Yeah. What? I'm not even. I don't. I can't. Okay. So a, I, I'm not a very good wasabi coder because I'm not on the Fogbugs team. Uh, B, if I have to do coding, honestly, it's .NET. But it used to be VB6, and I've done years and years of C++ on Unix. I've done years and years of C++ on Windows. Yes. I've done, um, uh, uh, you know, Lisp and Haskell and ML and. So what does it even mean? But but. Forget me. The question is, how is there such a thing as a .NET guy? Is this like you have the .NET flag, like that's your religion? Like I am a part of the uh, of the uh, .NET specific, like there's certain clothes that I have to wear, and I can't eat any kind of meat on Fridays. Well, there's a little bit of truth there in that, you know, they they brought you in because you're a notable you know figure in the community, which is great. But you know, you're also not really immersed in the Ruby community. I mean, your, your company is not producing any significant Ruby code. That is true. So, I mean, there's a little bit of truth there, but I, I agree with the sentiment that, that you're making, which is that we, you know, software development is bigger than one specific tribe, and we all have the last. I think um, the last keynote speaker they had was Zay Frank, so he's not really producing that much Ruby code either, <laughs> if I am not mistaken. Wow, you're really paying yourself a compliment there by you know equating yourself with Zay Frank. He's like a god, so. Yeah. Well, no, everybody says that it was much worse than Z Frank, so um, I'll go for it. There are communities that are more flag-wavy than others. Yes. We were discussing this when I got back from work. I think the Ruby community, uh, partially to their benefit and partially to their detriment, is a little bit more flag-wavy. Is there a real word for that? Parochial? Like believing that, that their kind is better than the other kind. Uh, I know what you mean, and I don't know if there's a one word that really captures the entire thing. And there, I mean, there is a whole spectrum. Like, I... I, I, I 
I've found in my experience, and I have a, a limited experience, but in my experience, I found that Windows programmers are the least flag wavy. They're generally very pragmatic, and that's why they're Windows programmers because they're like, you know, I don't care what's best. I just care that 90% of my potential users have Windows desktops, and I need to run on those Windows desktops. So, you know, it sucks. It doesn't suck. Who cares? And so they tend to be the least, uh, shall we say, uh, enthusiastic about their platforms. Right. Uh, and and then there's just sort of a whole range, and there's people that know perfectly well that their platforms suck, uh, the COBOL and assembler type programmers or whatever. And then there then there are people that are just sort of really 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 evangelical about whatever specific fractional distribution of Unix they're working on, um, and they think everybody else is stupid. The only run-in I've had that's been kind of negative is uh, I once made a passing reference to Visual Fox Pro. And understand that I used to be a Fox Pro developer, uh, Fox Pro for DOS. <laughs> so I actually liked it. I mean, it was great for its era. It was actually an outstanding tool for its era. But it never, in my opinion, really made... Oh, you're <laughs> Every laughing. bit as powerful as D-Base too. <laughs> you're, you're, you're laughing. But it never really made a, a good transition to Windows, in my opinion. I mean, it was okay, but it always felt like sort of a DOS tool. So eventually... The I last version of Fox Pro, I looked at it was still it was still even though it was windows you were still working in a character grid of 80 by 25 or something and it just displayed in windows but you still it was still like a monospace font and you told it like to go to what was it say at 10 comma 14 well it's been years since i touched it uh but i liked it so i made a passing reference to it on my blog and then all of a sudden i got all these comments from people who just the the, the the vaguest whiff of like someone criticizing Visual Fox Pro was enough to rile the crowd, and they had actually come out and said, "What do you mean by that? You know, Visual Fox Pro is really good." And it just surprised me. And I think if a community perceives itself as under siege, and I, I remember this back in the old days of computers, like the Amiga versus Atari ST, the more under siege a community perceives itself to be. Uh, the more likely it is to be very outspoken about that. I do find that there's a relationship yeah. there. If they don't That's have a, uh, confidence, self-confidence, say, okay, we're small and we don't care, uh, they're going to be out there you know, beating the bushes and you know, yelling at people. There is, uh, there is a psychological reason for that, um, well-documented in the psychological literature. It's the same reason people join fraternities. Mm-hmm. So there's a principle in psychology called cognitive dissonance. And here, here's how that works. The idea is, let's say, for example, that you are a enthusiastic Squeak programmer, and you've just written a web server in Squeak, which is a, the current version of Smalltalk, uh, the open source version of Smalltalk. Very nice, actually. Uh, anyway, so you've, uh, I think they have a framework. Is it Seaside? Is that the name of their framework? I, it sounds right. Small talk I don't know. It just doesn't matter. Anyway, so you're at work, and you've just built a whole web server. You've somehow convinced your boss to build this whole web server, and, server and squeak and you know it's crashing all over the place it's not production quality and it's just a big disaster and they can't hire squeak programmers and everybody's yelling at you all the time and people are calling you an idiot so now there's two possibilities you have now there's sort of what you have now is a psychological conflict between you did something and it it seems to have been the wrong thing and so you can resolve this, this this conflict between what everybody is telling you and what you actually did in one of two ways. You can either just admit to yourself that you were wrong and say the squeak isn't that good. Or you can make up this story to tell yourself that squeak must be so excellent that it must really be worth all the pain that you endure in order to use it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second one doesn't involve thinking that you're wrong. So it involves sort of less cognitive dissonance. 
in other words, there's less you're less upset by the theory that uh, that um, squeak must be really great, and that's why you endure all this pain. Then you are just kind of stupid for enduring this pain. So that's the principle of cognitive dissonance, and that, if anything, makes you much, much more attached to the platform because you have to in order to justify yourself while you're, su- while you're, while you're suffering all this pl- pain. And in- indeed, that is the principle that is used by fraternities in hazing. Um, so they haze people, and the people theoretically think to themselves, why am I undergoing this ridiculous torture in order to belong to the fraternity? And the two possibilities are, A, I am stupid, which is a painful thing to acknowledge, and B, I am – this fraternity is really worth joining. It's really going to be awesome once I'm a member, and so it must be worth going through all this hazing. And the second one requires not – does not require you to think that you're stupid, and therefore most people choose that one. And so that's the principle of cognitive dissonance. Oh, wow. I had read the term before, but I didn't realize it had that specific meaning. Yeah, it's a specific psychological psych 101 term, very uh, useful uh, concept. And I think that – so that's what happens when you have either a new or a very young technology uh, or you know, kind of a recently acquired technology. It's going to be painful to use no matter what. Like for example, there won't be books you can read on how to use it. Uh, none of your colleagues will know about it and they may taunt you about it. There's, you're just going to be undergoing all kinds of pain because you're using uh, a programming language or a programming environment that is not yet mainstream to have a lot of support. And it may indeed be worth it uh, or it may not. But in either case, you are undergoing pain. It's just it's just guaranteed that there's some there's some pain there. And and so you can say to yourself, I'm undergoing this pain because I'm stupid, or you can say to yourself, I'm undergoing this pain because it's really worth it. Because this is really truly a fabulous language. The second one is more common, and that's why these niche uh, groups. I don't I don't really. I, it's not fair to put Ruby in that category anymore. But in the early days, certainly uh, these more niche kind of kind of you know. Not yet documented, not yet mainstream version 0.1 products where you see the most uh, avid and vigorous and rigorous advocacy and uh, flaming rhetoric about how great their platform is and how anybody who doesn't believe is a heretic. And, and obviously, if you ever find somebody who agrees with you to use your crazy little niche, bizarre platform that nobody else uses, not like Ruby on Rails, I can tell that hate mail is already zinging my way. Uh, if you can ever find anybody else who agrees with you, then you know what, you're, what are you going to sit around and talk about? Well, God, aren't those other guys idiots for not using our platform? Right. And gosh, doesn't that suck? Right. Yeah, it's something the community has in common. Mutual enemies, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, it's easy to find them. Yeah. And it's easy to find the other the other three or four people who are using your crazy platform. Now, uh, I should say, uh, to be fair, that the reason that the Ruby on Rails and the Ruby community in general has an in for me is that at some point a friend asked me what to use, what programming environment to use for something he was building. And, um, and Ruby on Rails had been out at that time for eight months. And I said, you know, uh, uh, Java and .NET are fine. Um, I can't remember why I didn't say anything about PHP. And I said... Python is almost ready for prime time. This is a couple of years ago, and I said, and I, I can't remember what words I used, but I said basically Ruby is not quite ready for prime time yet. Uh, you know, it just didn't have enough of a track record that 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 you could bet your career on, on a Ruby project, uh, especially in his position. So anyway, so they all decided that I was a, a lunatic, and they all they've had it in for me since then, because I am clearly an enemy of the state. Now, since then, I think that was a couple of years ago. So Ruby is now. Ruby on Rails is now three years old. There's a huge community. There's 2,000 people going to the Rails conference. Uh, you know, just an absolutely stunning community. There's books that you can buy. There's a lot of 
Ruby programmers. Ruby programmers are in extreme demand right now um, because they're all sort of working. Every once in a while, you see a blog post that says, hey, uh, if you're a Ruby on Rails programmer looking for a job, right. come on, that's hopeless. It's not, not happening because the number of Ruby jobs is increasing at a rate that is much more rapid than the number of new Ruby programmers. Uh, and it is a very, very uh, elegant programming language, albeit not such a fast one. Um, so for large classes of problems, it's quite, quite suitable. Right. Well, you know what those Ruby programmers should do, though, Joel? Yeah, they should uh, learn C. I think. Well, n- they they mostly know C. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's your out. Yeah. You're just gonna say, well, they they already know C because they're. You know. Well, at the at the Reformation of 1915 okay. convocation in North Dakota, they were all required to learn C. I see. That's good. Well, I want to make sure that's at the forefront. That's it's amazing that that is an evergreen topic. The whole learning C is, is it comes up again and again. It's it's still funny. There's some very funny things I've read about it. Uh, so I I, I enjoyed that conversation. Uh, um, another yeah. thing that happened to me, and this is, this relates to New York City, your hometown. Uh, I did write a blog entry about the book "Here Comes Everybody" by Clay Shirky, and I've been hey, a long-time it. admirer of Clay Shirky's writing um, because I find that, and it's pretty much what I said in the blog post, but it really is true that I keep going back to it year after year, and every year it seems smarter than the, the last year that I read it because everything he writes about kind of tends to come true. I mean, not everything, but like 80%, which is still pretty darn good for somebody who's writing about you know, future trends and things like that. So I greatly admire Clay Shirky, and I loved his new yeah. book, uh, Here Comes Everybody, to the point that... Mm-hmm. Jared, the other programmer I'm working with on Stack Overflow, I gave it to him and made it assigned reading. It said, you must read this because the, the, the site we're building is about online community. Uh, and that's essentially what Here Comes Everybody is about, about these self-forming communities and mm-hmm. how, you know, now that the Internet is kind of mainstream, it's not necessarily all about techies and, you know, people who love computers, that it's really changing uh, a lot of the... F- uh, and I hate to be dramatic here, but sort of the fabric of how groups organize in the world, um, and for the better, largely. And it's a really powerful concept. And I'll, actually, anyone listening, I will still heartily recommend the book. And Clay is actually based in New York. And I was wondering, Joel, if you had ever met him. Yeah, sure. You have? Yeah, yeah, we hang out, man. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really uh, hang out or are you exaggerating? We have hung out. Okay, that's cool. Well, because he emailed me, which was nice again, because um, I said some very, very complimentary things about him, um, and he offered to to hang out. He's going to be out here for the Supernova conference, some conference. And what kind of conference is that? Uh, it's some, gosh, you know, Web 2.0 kind of thing. Um, I, I don't no. understand the details, but it's in San Francisco, which is great because that's that's just I can just get on Bart going to San Francisco. Uh, so mm-hmm. I will have the opportunity to meet Clay as, Clay as well, which is great because he's really, truly one of my sort of heroes in terms of – Yeah, he is. He's a very, very smart guy. They have uh, – you know, he's a, a part of – I think he's a part of this interactive technology program that NYU has had for the longest time. And um, there's a lot of r- really random nonsense at the interactive technology program, mm-hmm. but not him. No, no, no. I don't want to say random nonsense. There's, a, there's an awful lot of students in the interactive technology program that are really focused on interactive technology as if it were an art medium. And so they're doing things like making interactive art mm-hmm. uh, in in a way that is, shall we say, completely relevant to the art world and completely irrelevant to the technology world. Right. So they're making things that would have place in a gallery and, 
and an art, you know, an art historian might have something interesting to say about them. But to the geeks look at them and they're like, ah, I don't get it. You just made a window with static on it. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I'm really deconstructing what it means to be a window. Usually the, and in, a window is such an information rich thing and static is the absence of information. And so, yes. Yes. So uh, another um, thing that came up, and I guess I should ask you how many questions we have. Um, uh, we have about 100, but um, I queued up, I got about four. Yeah, we got a lot. Okay. And some of them are not good. Okay. <laughs> well, that's fine. Uh, before we get into that, I did read one. Um, I do have an ego. Like many people, I have an ego search set up in, in Google, which triggers based on my name. Um, because I do like to know when, when people are talking about me, and occasionally... Uh, it'll find things that I never would have found myself. And one thing I found this week was a, a blog post from Paulo. And unfortunately, Paulo, I don't have your last name in front of me. But Paulo was sort of complaining about our podcast, and he, he wrote some, this really sort of nice criticism. And, and I, I do take that stuff seriously. And I had actually a blog post this week about somebody who wrote in this long criticism of, of my blog and my writing. And I obviously, I don't address every criticism that, that people write about me. Otherwise, I, I'd do nothing else in the entire day. Uh, but if it's a really well, then people would criticize you for spending so much time addressing. But if it's a really, if it's a really well-written criticism, I do take that seriously because most people yeah. are going to just walk away from you if they don't like what you're doing. They'll say, you know what, screw you. They actually won't say anything. They'll just walk away. So when someone writes sort of a, a, a you know a thoughtful piece about, look, I, I, I want to like this thing, but here's why I don't. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I do like to address it and take it seriously because I feel like they're sending you a message. They're saying, look, I want to like what you're doing, but here's why. Uh-huh. It doesn't work for me. And granted, at, at the audience levels you get to and, and you have gotten to and I have gotten to, you can't satisfy everybody. It's impossible. Well, there comes it's, – it, actually, it's very bizarre. There was some point – as Joel on Software grew, uh, there was some point maybe three years into the project two – years, two years or three years into it where I actually started seeing negative comments. Instead, until uh, up until that point, when it was below you know ten thousand readers or whatever I don't know what the number is mm-hmm. or the date, but but you know when it was when it was on the order of thousands of readers in the early days, Dave Weiner used to link to me all the time, and in those days people would just not bother writing to me if they didn't have something nice to say, which I thought was really surprising, um, but it turned turned out to be the case. Well, you know when when you're sort of unknown and you write something and people like it, uh, you'll get the positive. If they don't like it, they'll just click on to the next thing, and. Um, uh, you know, at some point, I started getting the first negative feedback after a couple of years, and um, and then at some point, you become, and you're just hitting this point, and you've hit this point where you're actually kind of a brand name, and every young blogger needs to take you down because you're the established power, you're the authority, <laughs> you're the right, and so you need to be put in your place, right. Uh, and so th- th- there arise a new young generation of rebels who remember not when you were the young rebel. Uh, you know, writing interesting things so and making no claims to authority, right? When you and I started writing, we were like, well, we're just guys, you know, so this is what we think. If you disagree, could you please tell me why right. <laughs> and let's have a debate. But, uh, but you know, we're not, we're not saying you shall believe me because I am the authority. You know, I was very careful not to say that. Right. 
Right. Uh-huh. Well, there's a catch-22, though. It's, perception becomes the reality. I mean, that's true of everything. In- well, no, at some point, you become the official authority, right? So now, all of a sudden, Wikipedia is saying that Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky are authorities on blah, 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 or the gurus of such and such, or or maybe that's just what people think, because you know we automatically zoom up to slash dot and Reddit and dig and stuff like that, and so where we must be, you know, or everybody is always mentioning us in meetings at their little software company as if we were the authority on something, and they say, who the, who the heck are these jerkoids and they go and they research and they realize that we're just actual humans that we have no claim to authority that we don't you know you don't know C and and I I'm not the king of the universe or something or something else I don't know oh I know I don't like exceptions and therefore yeah um, which is dumb by the way but go ahead yeah let's talk about exceptions <laughs> no 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 that was completely I, I, yeah do you really want to talk about exceptions yeah, no, I don't know I just feel like I was misunderstood on exceptions okay go ahead because I came from a world when you're writing systems programming, yes. uh, an exception is just a way to get a bug in your code that you can't see. When you're writing application programming, it's a marvelously convenient and useful thing to have. But I'm, I, you know, I came from kind of a world where you're trying to write like a little bit of C code, like a page of code that a processor can run that will absolutely 100% work. And you really need to be constantly trying to think about every code path. And an exception is just one more thing that you may forget to think about. Mm-hmm. Um. So there. Well, I think this is an area where C programming is is really worse, much worse than than modern structured programming, like you would see in Java or .NET. Although yeah. Java does have that crazy concept of the checked exceptions, where you actually have to catch all the exceptions. Yeah, C uh, C has something called a long jump, which is uh, which is technically an exception, but it doesn't clean up stuff that's on the stack that you left around that you might have to free. Uh, C++ obviously has exceptions. But um, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Think about like at what level are you implementing something? If you're implementing a fairly low-level uh, operating system, you know, some low-level operating system functionality, and for whatever reason, it's just absolutely essential that the code runs perfectly and that every control path is carefully thought through and tested, then I think control paths, it helps to have your control paths be explicit in the code. Because it's one of the things that, you know, with exceptions, you're often just, you've got some function in the middle, and you've completely forgot that there are functions that you're calling that are throwing exceptions to functions above you. Now, if you're writing, like I say, if you're writing application programming, and there's something you need to get done, uh, if you're writing, uh, which is what most of our code is, you know, if you're writing, heck, a bug tracking application, and then 99% of the time when you have something that goes kind of wrong at the very low level, it's okay just to kind of abandon what you were doing clean up only in the most rudimentary of ways, display some kind of error message, and let the user go on. And it's really, really nice to have that exception capability as a programmer to do that. So so that's fine. It's just like if you were writing, say, a memory allocator for an operating system, then uh, uh, using exceptions are, is probably a very bad idea because it probably means that there are invisible code paths you haven't thought about. Well, how many people are actually writing memory allocators for operating system, though, relative to how many, Not many. programmers are working in the world? Yeah. I agree. So, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's where a lot of that, I think, criticism comes from. Yeah, well, the world, I mean, there's there's just sort of different types of things that people are doing with their programming languages. Right. And, uh, you know, and there's different tools that are appropriate to those different types of things. What, what I what I should get get myself into a debate about is threads. It's just like I'm, I'm not pretty convinced that there's almost never the right thing to do to write code using threads. Yeah, that one I, th- I actually might be with you on because certainly you could go to the Unix model, which is they just basically fork. Yeah. Ghetto yep. threading. I mean, that's just yeah. spinning up another process that does the same thing. And 
and then and then at a great expense coming up with some enormously complicated interprocess communication mechanism that's so difficult to do that you are forced to get it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, Whereas with threads, you sort of think, oh, la la, just put the thing there, and they'll put the thing, and he'll take that, and then all of a sudden you have a run condition, you don't know why. I like the song you were singing as you were writing the threading code. That that's that's a nice touch. The people always sing to themselves as they write threading code. The first. <laughs> It's like uh, one of those songs in the Snow White and Seven Dwarves. The dwarves are singing the song as they're writing the threading code. And it's going to be all they're horribly whistling while they wrong. Work. There's going to be deadlock. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be dead dwarves, deadlock, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, threading is, uh... threading is one of the major problems uh, facing the community. But what I found paradoxical about this whole situation is web server applications scale hugely. And nobody's writing any – like you think those PHP guys are writing threading code? I mean it's laughable, right? It's like no. <laughs> I don't think – And they're scaling – and they're getting the advantage of threading because the guy that wrote their web server – thought really, really hard about threading and has implemented all the threading code correctly, although that was practically impossible either, whether it's IIS or Apache or anything like that. Um, I don't know if the other ones do much threading. Does Apache even do threading, or do they just make a pool of processes? And In 2.0, I do know a little bit about this. Uh, not a lot, but I'll tell you what I know. Apache yeah. 1X did not really do that. It followed sort of the Unix model of it would just fork, fork, fork and create new processes. Mm-hmm. But I believe Apache 2.0 does do some threading. Like they sort of rewrote parts of it to better accommodate operating systems that weren't Unix, right? Because <laughs> on Windows, if you do that forking model, you're going to fall over. Because creating a process on Windows is a really heavyweight thing. It's mm-hmm. not something you, you want to do accidentally. Um, so they did, in Apache 2.0, I think they change their architecture somewhat to accommodate both camps, uh, but I'm unclear how much, you know, how far that goes. Yeah. And in that particular case, you have a very specific type of thread, which is actually doesn't really have to do much more than emulate a process that you used to have code for. Mm-hmm. And then it's, so at least you have a fighting chance of getting it right, because first of all, there's only one kind of thread, and it's very specific. Number two, it used to work with processes anyway, so you're not really doing something that you weren't doing before parallelizable-wise. Right. And three, you're just you're just one guy on one project. It's not like you're trying to build a whole, you know, you're trying to build eBay using all a bunch of threads. It's like it's like the guy that wrote that thread code for Apache. You know, one or two people and they can concentrate on it and pay a lot of attention to it and they'll still have a million bugs which they'll never find. Right. All right. Where were we? Well, no, no, no. Uh, Before we, one yeah. last, one last thing on that. Uh, so, Paint.net, okay. which we've talked about, it's a great app. That, Rick Brewster, yes. who wrote that, has a great blog where he talks about Paint.net, and I'll always remember he wrote a really long blog entry about the threading stuff that he did for Paint.net. And graphics is one of the areas where you can actually get huge benefits from threading. Like you can almost. Yeah. Oh, you mean if you have two processors? Yeah, if you have more than one processor and you have you know multiple yeah. six eight processors, it, it scales really really well, and, and it's one of those problems that's amenable, just very amenable to this to this uh, approach of multi-threading. Mm-hmm. And he said up front, he's like, "This is the most complex code in Paint.net by far." Was the threading mm-hmm. stuff, uh, and it just mm-hmm. goes to show you that even when the benefits are very clear. Versus unclear of like okay well why should we thread? Um, it's really the the most difficult code you may ever write, um, and and it's a huge challenge. Even when it's the right thing to do, it's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of and uh, the difficulty probably means that you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> so in general, sometimes sometimes something may be the right thing to do, but there's something else you can do that you're more likely to get right. Sometimes. You know, you really have no choice. You absolutely positively, like if you just need to be performant on large graphical operations on multi-core systems, 
then you can either do multi-process or multi-threaded, but you're going to have to do one or the other. You just don't. You're just sort of left without a choice. On the other hand, threading was initially proposed as a way of taking these object-oriented programs and having the objects run in independent threads. And it was actually believed that you would do this, I guess in the early days, it was actually believed that you would do this simply for the convenience of not having any particular determinism as to what order the objects ran in. Or rather than having to, like let's say you were writing a little game and your game had little sprites and the sprites are moving around on the screen and there's your AI and there's you and there's your sound process and there's the little musical things that are playing. It's like, let's just throw each of those in a thread and it's really really convenient. You don't have to figure out how to schedule them in any way. You just let them each run in their own little threads. And now all of a sudden you have code that's a million times too hard to, to maintain and get right. Right. Um, how did we get on that? Well, because Let's delete all that. That was terrible. That was boring. No, no, no. I thought it was a good discussion. <laughs> I don't want to delete it. Uh, I do want to come back around to Paolo because I, I, I realized I talked about Paolo. Oh, yeah, yeah. He actually left a comment on our site because I, I left a comment on Paolo's site trying to have this conversation. I was like, well, you know, what don't you like about it? And Granted, we can't satisfy everybody, but I was curious to hear what his thoughts were. And I think a lot, a lot of what he's saying here, it's actually in a comment on the blog.stackoverflow.com, is he wants us to talk more about the specific technology we're using in Stack Overflow um, and, and how we're using it. Uh, so I, let me just real briefly touch on some of the stuff we haven't talked about. Um, so we are using SQL Server 2005 as the back end, which is kind of mm-hmm. the default choice if you're a Microsoft developer. I mean, you're in the Microsoft stacks, so you're going to use the Microsoft database. Um, I have had pleasant experiences with SQL Server. Um, one thing I do mm-hmm. like about it is it's, it's mostly self-tuning, because I know when I use my C- uh, no, it's not. Well, okay. No, to some no. Degree. Good lord, You'll, you're going to think that, and then one day there's going to be some query that's unbelievably slow, and you're going to be like, "What the heck?" And you're going to spend like five hours working on it, and then somebody's going to be like, "Oh, did you try sp underscore update stats?" And you're going to run sp underscore update stats, and all your problems will be cured. You'll be like, "Well, why didn't it do that?" Yeah. Well, that, that's one of my beefs, and I've, I've I've actually run into this more with MySQL. Like MySQL, even with little dinky stuff, like when I had that problem with WordPress, I had to go through and basically reconfigure huge swaths of MySQL to get it to perform respectably using WordPress, yeah. which is a it was a really simple database. I mean, I mean, there must have been like you know twenty records in the, the whole thing. So I, I I think that's disappointing. But your point when is- you say self tuning, do you mean like there's that wizard you can run that tells you what? Um, what uh, what indexes to create and stuff? No, I guess I'm a little bit of a utopian, and then I believe really so. the database yeah. should be looking at the queries that are coming in and making decisions yeah. about those without yeah. you necessarily having to do tons of extra work. Like, say you start querying a column over and over and over, but the column isn't indexed. Well, the database should go, you know what? I'm just going to put an index on this column because you weren't smart enough to do that. Okay, so that would be great, but SQL Server doesn't do that. Well, I know. I agree, and I, I want to be clear. Okay. I, I think SQL Server is... Slightly know, more self-tuning than MySQL, but not. You're right. I mean, at some level, all these databases, and the worst is actually Oracle, where it's almost like Oracle. They go out of their way to to, to create this priesthood of people that understand uh. Oracle at a very low level, because you almost have to tweak the crap out of everything in Oracle to get performance. <laughs> have you ever actually worked with Oracle? I, I did it at a previous job. I, I definitely agree with you. And you know what? SQL Server, I haven't seen the prices lately, but the last I was looking, it was one-fifth of the price of Oracle. Yeah. Well, it's compared to MySQL, which most people effectively view as free, although I don't think it's actually free. I think there's yeah. licensing behind it. And doesn't Sun actually owns MySQL now? 
I want to say two things about MySQL. Well, I want to say something about MySQL, and then I want to say something really, really deep. The thing about MySQL is that uh, we support uh, um, SQL Server and MySQL for fog bugs. And um, MySQL um, is the only database I've ever programmed against in my career that has had data integrity problems where you do queries and you get nonsense answers back that oh. are incorrect. You've actually gotten like, bad answers back? Yeah, like like you do select count from some table and you get some large, obviously random number wow. that's not correct. And uh, the response to that to that particular incident was, oh yeah, that's just the version of MySQL that ships with that particular version of Mac OS ten and you need to upgrade the latest version and it won't have that bug. But I've never but but what occurred to me is MySQL has lots and lots of little versions like many of those open source products and it uh, uh, many of them uh, have data integrity type bugs or data integrity type issues that would be shocking to anybody that's used to working with stable releases from Microsoft. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's a fair criticism. And I actually had a friend. Now the deep thing, yeah. Well, I just want to say the deep thing before I go any further. Sure, go ahead. Uh, which is that this is what I just told you was like this one little anecdote of this one thing that happened to me, and it's a little bit distracting. I've, lately, I've become a little bit distressed at how, especially in our field and in the, the field of blogging, these little anecdotes tend to become more than anecdotes. Mm-hmm. Like maybe this is just one little tiny thing, and maybe I just happen to miss because that wasn't the query that I did, the exact instance of this exact thing happening in SQL Server where MySQL got it right. Or maybe, like, basically the experience I've had is just one person's experience, and that's not a lot of experience to, to do a judgment call on. It's not, not enough data to make a decision. So we're... Right. It's just an anecdote. Yeah. And that's one of the things that frustrates me, actually, about blogging or, or just the Internet in general. I was ranting to Jared last night. I practically couldn't go to sleep. I was so upset because he was... We're trying to figure out what fridge to buy for the beach house, and he was just sort of surfing the Internet and looking and seeing what people are saying about various fridges, and I wanted to read Consumer Reports. And he's like, ah, oh, Consumer Reports, they're so depressing because they're always testing things and they're always telling you that you shouldn't buy a Sub-Zero because it has twice the incidence of breaking. And uh, and it's just depressing. And and I said, well, you know, you're, at least Consumer Reports buys all these fridges and they set them all up and they do some kind of moderately scientific experiment on all these fridges. And then they send letters to thousands of people asking them what kind of fridge they have and how often it breaks. And they actually compile this data. And they're, when they're telling you that a Sub-Zero is twice as likely to break as a General Electric, that's actual, like, data. But when you go to Amazon and you read the review for the General Electric fridge, you're getting information from a person who has experience with maybe four fridges, mm-hmm. you know, and has no scientific background whatsoever and absolutely no reason to be answering this. And what set me off on the whole thing was an article that appeared yesterday in the New York Times. Uh, uh, I, I don't know who wrote it. Well, a New York Times columnist was complaining about the decreasing level of service on American Airlines, not American Airlines, but airlines in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they cost, cut costs, there are decreasing levels of service. And she illustrated this by saying that she was on a flight re- recently where there was no sink in the bathroom. There was just one of those little squeezy things with the alcohol rubbing stuff that you use to decontaminate yourself after you go to the bathroom. But there was no actual sink, sink with running water. And she thought this was a gross, this was terribly gross. And she's like, look how much they're cutting back. And this annoyed me because there is actually no airline that has removed sinks from the bathrooms. What had happened is she had flown on a little itsy-bitsy commuter plane, which she obviously never did before, and they never had sinks. I see. 
So because it's a 19 person plane, which you didn't notice, I guess. And uh, it's small. And and um, what was weird, first of all, is that this has gotten past fact checkers. But also what occurred to me that her anecdote was just based on her experience of taking a few flights. And she had taken a flight on a large plane and then taken a flight on a small plane and decided that that must be a cutback that the American that American Airlines are, are are taking, and you know there are lots and lots of cutbacks, and they are removing the pillows and the cap, the 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 uh, blankets and the earphones and whatever. They're removing all kinds of stuff, and that's true. They're just not removing the sinks. There's plenty she could have complained about that would have been real. So that that was bad, bad enough that the general story was kind of wrong in that particular way by applying an anecdote of somebody who does not have a lot of experience with taking flights and is therefore extrapolating from a very, very small piece of the elephant uh, in, de- in describing the whole elephant. But then there was an entire train, because it's the New York Times and they have you know comment on this article, there were another 200 comments from all kinds of people who had also each taken one flight recently and were extrapolating wildly and saying crazy things like United Airlines is getting better when it's not or Continental Airlines is the worst when it's not or just all kinds of stuff that's just just factually wrong because of the three flights that they took and that they had just and they didn't realize how badly they were extrapolating from their anecdote onto reality i think that's a fair point but i don't know that the internet makes that unique the internet just makes it easier for you to get up on a pulpit yeah. and express mm-hmm. your one data point the other thing that's interesting yeah. there and the new york times would have run that stupid story even if it had been a print paper long before the internet came out right so that's true yeah yeah so there's there's not yeah, so I won't blame that on the internet. It's just uh, there's just just the, the weird tendency to make anecdotes into truths, and and I actually, as a blogger, I'm starting to feel a little bit guilty about this because I don't know how many times. I mean, the standard model for a blog article, not your blog, your blog articles are like researched, so they, I like them, but the standard model that I follow and a lot of people copy me is is to claim is to tell a little anecdote, some little story of something that happened to you, and claim that it's a model for what everybody should do all the time, and then try to make some kind of big meta. More the moral of the story is you should always do this, and when you add up all those morals, it takes about ten minutes to find everybody saying you should do everything every possible way. Right. Yeah. Anecdote-driven development is probably a real challenge, and I, I'm glad that you saw that because you're right. I mean, a lot of your early writing is is you know hugely entertaining, and I think it has some excellent points as well. But you're right. It, it's anecdote-driven, so. You can begin to question the model. It's not exactly science. Uh, and I think the right. model that I've been using is more of a meta-aggregation type of model where I go out and I look at a bunch of different people's opinions and I try to sort of more or less summarize them and then also maybe have my own position on it. So you're right. It's, yeah. it's sort of research-oriented in the sense that I'm, I'm quoting a lot. People complain that I quote too much. Um, but what I'm doing when I do that is I'm trying to show you different facets of this argument. And it frustrates me a little, like with the XML thing that I wrote and the PHP thing that I wrote, that people see those as just straight-up opinions of like, oh, Jeff says XML sucks, Jeff says PHP sucks, so he sucks. Uh, But what I was trying to communicate is there's pros and cons to this stuff. And I I obviously have opinions because I'm a guy that has a lot of opinions. That's one reason I have a blog. Um, but But I'm trying to show you some of the nuances to it, like the pros and cons to it, by pointing out other people that have written about it um, and, and places you can go to find out more about it. And generally, I just want people to think about it more. And that's why I wrote a blog post that I referred to earlier about um, strong opinions weekly held. And the weekly held part is where you know, you're looking at the research and saying, okay, this is what I think, but I could be convinced otherwise. Um, right. And Paul Sappho, who actually came up with that, he, he was the 
former director at the uh, Institute for the Future, which is like I guess some think tank, um, actually wrote me about that, which was great. I mean, I was I was great, very glad to hear from Paul. Um, but I was glad to finally have a name to put on this because I really do do that. Like I'll get really excited about certain things and say this is the greatest thing ever since sliced bread, and then like a week later I'm like, oh, that's all crap. This is the new greatest thing. And so rather than you know considering myself a total flake. <laughs> who's very easily swayed by whatever, uh, which may still be true, I can say, you know, it's a byproduct of strong opinions weekly held. Um, yeah, and, and, I, and some of this stuff is not actually – like it's okay not to have a scientific answer because you can derive it from first principles, so to speak. Like you don't actually have to go out and measure a million development teams and find the ones using JSON, the ones using XML, and the ones using YAML and see which one is most successful, which would be an impossible scientific experiment. You can actually go back to first principles and look at the – just look at the code – Look at the data formats, and and come to a reasonably educated opinion uh, about you know the superiority of, of one or another. Right. Yeah, I, I think if you look at enough opinions, so so the example you gave about refrigerators, let's go back to that. So I, the way I would approach that personally, I would view those all as data points, right? Like Consumer Reports is a data point. The Amazon reviews are a data point, like the spread, like how many people hated it, how many people loved it, how many were credible. You end up yeah. having to consume a lot more of this to get a good answer because you want to look at the big, big picture. If you zoom in on this one user on Amazon who hated Sub-Zero – you know, obviously, you're going to get uh, a, a wrong impression uh, or an incorrect yeah. impression. That person is not a scientist. Um, but if you consider it all, you actually there, there's actually some great information that can come out of it. There's a uh, a consensus that can kind of emerge. Uh, and if if you ever use like Rotten Tomatoes, sometimes and sometimes the consensus is that we have to invade Iraq <laughs> because they have weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, and, and it, you just it, you're reading every newspaper and they're all saying the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, then that's why I'm really well. I don't want to. I don't want to make this political in any kind of way, but but it's not your refrigerator that makes this dangerous, or you're accidentally using YAML instead of JSON. What makes this dangerous is when your entire country goes to war because you don't have a good system of ferreting out the truth. Right. Well, I think if you're going to war, every, somebody's lost their sense of humor and their you know objectivity. <laughs> I mean, really, at some really high meta level, someone has lost their you know sense of humor. And I think it is important for everybody to realize this isn't these aren't religious issues, particularly the refrigerator, that's easy to see. But when you talk about Iraq, it becomes almost like a religious issue, you know, and that's really the danger is and I think that's the great thing about strong opinions weekly held is you say, okay, I'm not going to be religious about this. I feel strongly about this, but I'm not going to, you know, fight you to the death about I'll, I'll change my mind if it's if I'm wrong. Yeah, show me data, yep. right? It's it's about the data. I'm and this cool. is all there's all these data points and and you know, my wife is a scientist and I I, sh I think I share a fascination with with collecting data of various kinds. It's just really you know, fun to go out and look at all the data points and come, you know, graph it and come to a conclusion. Um, so that, that to me is what it's about. It's having, getting as many sources of data as possible. And that's why the internet is so great. And I can tie that back to Clay Shirky's book. There's so many more people giving you data um, that there's yeah. you know, an endless supply of this data. So then it becomes a question of you know, how do you aggregate it and what do you do with it? That becomes the challenge. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So hopefully you guys have a um, nice fridge. That's that's. I want you guys to have a nice fridge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to do about that. So Apparently the sub zeros are really. They're just really really expensive, and they have two compressors instead of one, so they break twice as often. Weren't you telling me your fridge like it has a problem where you close it and like yeah. you can't reopen it because there's too much pressure, which I found very comical. I have a mental image of Joel Spolsky like pulling on the fridge and being unable to <laughs> open. it. Going, I found the wasabi. If we had wasabi in this future, it would totally solve this problem. 
Or a little sign. Yeah, that it is that fridge, and that fridge actually uh, died. So, um, so in looking to replace it, we discovered that it is uh, that it's it's one of those really wide fridges. Oh. It's forty two inches wide. It's like wider than a normal fridge, and and those are just like r- ridiculously expensive, just like shockingly expensive. Oh, that's hilarious because we had a so we're getting it repaired instead. We had a similar problem with stoves. There's this geometric correlation between width of a stove, and I am not at all joking, and price. Yeah, it's like hilarious. Factorial. Yeah, it's almost factorial. It's it's incredible. Yeah. So you're right. What we ended up doing was building a, a facade so that we mm-hmm. had a smaller, narrower opening. <laughs> <laughs> and we could actually not pay $5,000 yeah. for a stove. So I yeah, feel your pain. To it. It, it totally yeah. correlates to width. That's hilarious. So b- before um, we go too much further, I would like to get to the questions. Yeah. I feel like we're not Questions. Right. Oh, let's do at least one. Yeah. Uh, where are we? Uh, how do you get the questions? I click on here. Uh, here's a – oh, this is a good question because we were talking about languages. I want to bring this one up. Here's a, uh, uh, a question about DSLs. Hi, Joel. Jeff. My name is Tendai Mawushe in Dublin, Ireland. And as one of your two remaining listeners, I'd like to say I'm certainly enjoying the podcast, and I hope you guys have the energy to keep it going. My question is a follow-up to the discussion you had last week on XML. I work primarily as a Java developer, and certainly in the enterprise Java world, there was a time when you couldn't do pretty much anything without writing a lot of XML. And to some extent, in response to that, a new idea has come up which is gaining popularity, which is that of domain-specific languages or language-oriented programming where you create little languages which take the concepts in your problem domain and treat them as first-class concepts, and then you write your business applications in those little languages. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that and where you might see that idea going in the future. Thanks. You, wanna, you, just did, you recently did the whole XML, JSON thing. You want to take a shot at that? Um, well, I think in the general principle he's describing, I, I'm definitely for it. I mean, I think there's going to be increasing specialization in languages. And I think Ruby is an example of that. I mean, I think if you went back three or four years, people would say, you know, what? You're creating a new language? What are you, crazy? I mean, you know what that sounds like, right, Joel? (laughs) Uh, But I think creating new languages, uh, if they solve really specific problems that you're having, makes total sense. And I think eventually the the software engineering or computer science, whatever you want to call it, might actually evolve to the point where will have an explosion of these really narrow languages attacking your domain. Like, say yeah. you're doing embedded programming. Are you well, there are. Ruby? I mean, these things already exist. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think yeah. the popularity is going to grow, is my point. It's going to be less of a, oh, you got to choose Coke or Pepsi. <laughs> well, think of – all right. So, so think of, like, let's say that you need a, uh, a programming language for to run phone switches. Uh, so, like, for example, the asterisk configuration file. There's mm-hmm. a programming language. And it's a language in which you describe stuff about how the phone switch should work, and it certainly doesn't need loops, and because that doesn't make sense in a phone switch. Right. But it does need things like forward calls from this number after 6 p.m. to that number. And, and one thing that always bugged me a little was I enjoyed even in the the C sharp code that I was writing, mm-hmm. I enjoyed using regular expressions because I viewed regular expressions as a language specifically dedicated to dealing with strings, mm-hmm. and I thought that it did that extraordinarily well. Right? I mean, granted, the syntax is a little hard to read, but yeah. if you're manipulating strings, I mean, regex is like such a joy. Like, I mean, really, it's just fun to work with for me. And the same thing with SQL. Like, people, I would meet programmers that hated SQL. I'm like, well, how can you hate SQL? SQL is the language of data. Like, saying you hate SQL is like saying, I hate data, which I can't really uh, empathize <laughs> with. So, 
I hate I, people, but okay. Like, I, I mean, I didn't see a problem, quote unquote, mixing these languages. Like, you would see programmers write these long frameworks that did nothing but hide the fact that, oh, you're using regular expressions. Well, now you can just instance up this object and call this method, and you don't ever have to, you can pretend that SQL and, and regular expressions don't exist. Um, and I had a problem with that. And I feel like domain-specific languages are, are powerful precisely because they attack the problem specific to the thing you're trying to do. Well, I have a stupid question. Where are these coming from? Are these coming from Java programmers, this, this concept of domain-specific languages? Like, what world is this from? Uh, I, I think uh, – so Rails. Is the patterns people? I, I, I have no idea. I mean, I think Rails as as a attacking the web problem because Ruby's the language, right? And people say Ruby on Rails, and they sort of forget that there's two specific things there. There's the language Ruby, and then there's Rails, which is this DSL attacking. No, but I mean, Rails is in Ruby. When you're writing Rails code, you're not writing in some language that somebody's written a mini compiler for. You're well, actually writing on. Rails code. Hold on. So one Ruby of the ch- sorry, but the uh, dynamic nature of Ruby means that you yeah. can it's li- it's lisp like uh, 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 in that you can redefine the language. Y- you know, you can change the way the string works like literally, like yeah. completely, which is scary to me and I think scary to a lot of other people. They're like, "Wow, the string doesn't work like I expect it to anymore." Um, but you've built a little new language, right? Because you can redefine the fundamental way the keywords work at a very low level. So is this coming from people like Ruby, or is it coming from people in Java looking at what Ruby is doing and wishing they could do the same thing? Because um, the one thing I can be sure of is that it's not coming from Lisp. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all, that's all you do in Lisp. Lisp is like the... Exactly. The that was my whole point. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Lisp the, is the canonical example. Of the truth is, for, for somebody to stand up and say, we need domain-specific languages seems to me like they are using a programming language which doesn't have a good enough way to express trees mm-hmm. and as literals. And C-sharp and, and Java are firmly in the camp of not having a good enough way to create trees. So basically, the, the, to, to me, if your language has a very, very powerful capability of creating any size or shape of data structure literally in the code on the fly, you're going to that's how you're going to do your domain-specific stuff, language, whatever. You're going to say it's a tree that has these things in it. And so because, because Java never had a good way to make a tree, a tree literal, it, it was just impossible. You would, have to, you would have to create all the objects and then assign them all to each other and then create references to each object inside each of its parents' objects. And you would just wind up with thousands and thousands of lines of procedural code to try to describe you know, a typical HTML page if you tried to do that as a literal in code. And so... Uh, I think that the first thing that the Java programmers did, and that's a little bit what this caller was alluding to, is um, they wrote really good XML class libraries, and they used XML as the be-all and end-all language for everything, and then they allowed these XML class libraries to somehow load those structures into into memory and then do the domain-specific thing with them. And that way, you could basically use XML as your syntax for any kind of domain-specific language you want to come up with, whether it's describing a world of games or describing a bunch of rules for interest rates at a bank or describing business process rules or creating a, a, a fluid flow model for a factory or whatever it may be. Um, you would do it in XML, and then you parse the XML using the tools, and then you get it into a data structure. And it seems to me like the list programmers would never have had this thought for a minute because it would never occur to them that you can't just create lists of lists and just nest them all as deeply as you want in their native language, which they are using every day. Right. 
And what's really cool, the the really cool thing about Ruby uh, and Python actually is that they actually have enough syntactic capability that you can create code that is actually procedural but looks declarative. Right. Agree. Totally. So that's hugely powerful. Yeah, so it sort of looks like you're creating, like let's say that you are trying to create this domain-specific language and you're doing it in Ruby code, actually. The whole thing may look like it's a tree. It's declaring a tree, and it's saying this thing is here and that thing is there. And actually, that thing's got to run at runtime. It just happens to look, because just it's just the nature of the elegant syntax of Ruby and, and Python uh, and, and the ability to override things at the right points and at the right levels. Uh, and the ability to just create, you know, does C-sharp 3.0, Sorry to ask such a stupid question. Does it have a way to create a Lisp uh, list, a list on the fly, even? Um, so they've been slowly sort of overloading language to do dynamic e things. Uh, generics was one step in 2.0, um, and now one thing they've added is I think it's called extension methods. Where if you decide, hey, the string class should have this method called Jeff's crazy method mm-hmm. that looks and feels like a native method, but it is in fact declared in your code. Well, wait, wait, wait. Very specific question. I just need to make an array that has the values 1, 2, 3, those three values, 1, 2, 3, in the array. Uh, So I know in classic Java, I need to declare the array. You can do it in line. And then I have to set the values of each of those three things. So it's C-sharp. Yes, you can Can do that. Can I nest things? Actually, that's that's, those are some of the dynamic 3.0 features, right? Right. Yeah, you can do that. You absolutely can. There's there's a bunch of semi cool stuff in 3.0. So that's a that's an improvement over where we used to be. And oh, yeah. once so, they get really good at that stuff, uh, you may never create another DSL again. I, I will say that you know not to come down hard on Java again. We've already I think been pretty hard on Java. <laughs> uh, but I will say that C Sharp and particularly Anders, you know, the language designer, has been really smart about growing the language organically in ways that people want that, that reflect kind of some of this sense. new thinking about, okay, dynamic languages are great, and then we have you know the DLR, the dynamic language runtime, which is what Iron Python and Iron Ruby are based on. And did you see recently that Iron Ruby, um, which is John Lamb's project, actually, I think, was running unmodified Rails code. That's a new development. Hmm. Um, they actually got Rails up and running on uh, Iron Ruby, which is a huge deal. That was pretty recent news. So I think Microsoft has been really responsive to a lot of these new developments in sort of the developer community, uh, maybe more so than people would give them credit for being Microsoft. I think the de- you know Microsoft has been such a long-time developer company. I mean, if you think what was Microsoft's first product, it was like basic, I think, for the Altair, right? Right. <laughs> So this goes back to their very roots, and I still think they do development stuff really, really well. So I, I want to give them their props on this. Um, they've been, I think, keeping up very well with new developments on, uh, such as Ruby. Yeah, almost. Almost. You don't think so? No, well, yeah. Compared, I, I, I was, I was very – I'll tell you, I was really disappointed with Link um, for a couple of reasons. One is that they somehow managed to make it this backwards SQL syntax that you use, like from table select, blah, blah, blah. Just because yeah. that allegedly flowed better for IntelliSense purposes, right? And I don't buy that story, and it's irritating. And I'm and, and the minute I saw that, I was like, oh god, do I have to? The whole point here was to yeah. merge these syntaxes and not to make another one. And the other is because they added a, a bunch of nifty little features to make Link work that are just not as flexible as they could be. Um, so, uh, in, in particular, what was I trying to do? Uh, I think I was just trying to. Um, 
Okay, I'm not going to be able to remember on the spot. Um, but I was. But the truth is, they added a, a whole bunch of, of new capabilities to do things. Oh, I know what I wanted to do. They have this idea of a of a, of a variant now, where you basically don't declare the type of something and let it be inferred. Right. right. But uh, you can't use that as a, as an argument to a function. For example. Right. Well, that's so where they, they basically they, they went about five percent of the way with some of these concepts. They went about five percent of how far they needed to go. They just went just far enough to get Link to kind of work, but none of these really really nice things like um, uh, dynamically typed uh, things or or, or not, not even dynamically typed, just type inferred things, type inferred data types. Um, they never they didn't go quite far enough so that you could actually use those features yourself in a non-Link scenario. Which to me is just sort of a shame. It's like, oh, God, take it one step further, guys. It's just obvious what the next step is. And but that next step is the dynamic language runtime. So I see what you're getting at. They're bolting stuff. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm even talking about type inferencing, and they just sort of like they they kind of added things, you know, like it, 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 and and it's and it's you can sort of see how it's possible to do these things, but you kind of can't do what you want to do. I, I wish I could give a better example of that, but for right now, um, the, the, the key thing that I remember is that you don't have to declare the type of something. However, uh, uh, it'll, it'll infer it in many, many cases, but the minute you take that thing that whose type you haven't declared and, and you want to infer and you try to pass it to another function, mm-hmm. uh, you can't do that. Right. Well, I think so what you're seeing like, is whole categories of things become impossible for no reason. Well, I think what you're seeing there is you want to go fully dynamic, right? You don't want this fake pseudo-dynamism. Uh, dynamic, I want to go type-inferred. There's a difference. I want the compiler to figure out what type something is at compile time, which is what it's doing, and I want it to – so I don't have to type the actual type. I don't have that's to, the very nature of dynamic language. You don't have to type anything. You know. Yeah, the but there's duck, a difference between a dynamic language and type-inferred. A dynamic language is one where it's not decided until runtime what type yeah. something is, and that has a performance penalty. A type-inferred language is one where it's uh, decided at compile time, but it's decided based on all kinds of inferences and logical reasoning that you do about that code. That thing must be an integer because a minute later you're going to add something to it. So it's got to be an integer. So I know that that's an integer. I can compile it as an integer and make it run just as fast as if it were native code without uh, any performance penalty, but without requiring you to declare that it's an integer. We can infer that. And so C Sharp is not yet doing the dynamic thing. What C Sharp is doing is type inferencing in certain cases, in certain situations. Pretty uh, narrow. Uh, but, it's, but it's so narrow as to be uh, frustrating. It's like, right. just let me, you know. And um, uh, so I, that, so I was actually kind of disappointed in, in that. I was expecting it to go a lot further. And I think they're now, like, I, I really do feel like C Sharp um, in in some ways, I mean, it's the main it's, it's the main language that I use. So let's not get carried away. But I do feel like it's sort of a generation behind Python and Ruby, in uh, and and certainly a couple of generations behind Haskell. Well, I think that and that's that was my point was that I think if you feel strongly about that, then Iron Python and Iron Ruby that's what that's entirely yeah. about. These are from Maybe, the ground yeah. up. And they're running on the run. Iron Python is pretty freaking amazing. Did we talk about this last week? Iron Python is actually a better ASP.NET programming language than C Sharp. Oh yeah, no, I don't. Because you don't have to keep doing this form dot find control thing. You can just put the name of the control, and it'll yeah. because it's Python because it's dynamic. Right. No, I I agree, and that's sort of what I was getting at. Well, yeah. we should probably cap it here because I don't want to get too far over an hour. Um, uh, but there's a nice discussion on performance I want to have maybe next week. Cool. Okay. Um, what else do we have to talk? You know what? I didn't get. I I, I did go through a whole bunch of the. Uh, of the of the emails that we got, and we have a whole bunch more, and I'll I'll play them. And I, I had four for today, and I didn't really 
get to all of them. But uh, if you're listening, um, you know what would be cool to call in about? We didn't get a lot of answers about this. What what system do you use for managing passwords? Because I don't think I've gotten a good answer to that. We got a lot of textual responses. We didn't get a lot of audio responses on that. Yeah, I have no use for text. I can't read. So <laughs> get your little MP3 recorder and tell me what method you're using to keep in a secure fashion all your passwords to all these websites uh, and make it available on multiple computers at home and at work and all that kind of stuff. And maybe even Mac, Windows would be good and available on the web in an emergency and so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, do you have a good solution? At, yep. Podcast at stackoverflow.com. Uh, yeah, but like I say, record an MP3, Ogvorbis, Wav, or, or use that um, blog, a talk, a radio thing, uh, which is awesome. A lot of people are using that. It works, works very well. Uh, to uh, It's just a phone number that you call, and it records a little MP3 for you, and you get the link to it and send that to us. And um, what else? Any other business that we have? So uh, three. Uh, uh, this is podcast episode number eight, which means eight. that we have three to six weeks until we're shipping the first beta of Stack Overflow. Yep. One tiny bit of business. I did add one more member to our team. It's another person that I used to work with because I, I have cronyism really badly in the way that oh, I run yeah. my projects. Right, it's coming uh, out of yourself. So we, we have added another person to the team. Who's uh, that? So, uh, his name is Jeff Dalgas, and he. I worked with him in Colorado through 99, and he's a very, very smart coder. I'm really excited to have him on board. All right, we've got three people. That means it's two to four weeks instead of three to six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> totally makes sense. Mostly I, I'm just trying to compensate for my own inadequacies, and Jeff is uh, gladly helping me with this. So. I was down at the uh, construction site for our new offices today, yes. and they gave me a schedule. And I'm like, well, when are we moving in? And the guy said, well, you know, October 15th. <laughs> October 15th. Oh, my God. We were hoping August 1st. And oh, wow. I said, you know, October 15th. Well, we're going to be homeless on September 1st. So is there any way we can move that up to September 1st? And he's like, hmm. All right. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah, and so what he was thinking, obviously, is you can believe September 1st if that makes you happy. Still well, what are you guys going to do, moving though? in October 15th. <laughs> what are you guys going to do? Seriously. I mean, you have oh, to... It's a disaster. What are you going to do? Seriously. Well, the, the main reason this thing's so long is because they are not yet trying to get there's, – there's these things called lead times in construction where you like order a part, like a particular kind of vent or a particular kind of light, and the, the person who makes it says, well, there's a 14-week lead time on that, which means you can't have it for 14 weeks. And they seem to have the philosophy that if this happens, that that gives you 14 weeks to relax at the beach until oh, the light arrives. And my approach is go back to the light vendor and say, what kind of lights do you have that are similar to the light, light that I like, which are in stock? Right. And they say, ooh, yeah, I guess we could do that, they say. So a lot of the reason that, uh, that, that, that their schedule was so absurd is that they are not yet aggressively trying to, let's say, manage the vendors so as to bring those long lead items in shorter or replace them with other items or just basically do everything they can to get things moving faster. I see. And uh, so hopefully they'll do some of that and we'll be in sometime before – October fifteenth, but it's kind of a kind of a bad right. situation. Bad, bad situation. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure you'll keep us updated, and I'm sure the fine people at Fog Creek will have some place to work, even if it's only you know a foldable desk in the hallway somewhere. Right. That's good. <laughs> it's kind of kind of something like that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the hallway of of um, your apartment, right? That <laughs> 
Uh, thanks a lot for listening uh, to all you peoples out there. Um, send us more uh, MP3s uh, with your questions. Limit them to 90 seconds, please. Uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com. See you next week. Bye. Uh, where's the stop record?